I'm reading in Mark 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of the demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes, blasphemies he, they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. Church, you may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, uh, for those of you who I don't know, my name is Brian Carroll. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. You got to meet Ryan earlier. Um, but so really quick, um, a lot of you know this, uh, some of you may not. So this is my first uh, sermon back uh, preaching since January 1st. And so we um, had, our, had our first kid, my wife and I, Judah, uh, on January 9th. Yeah, we're excited. We, we think he's pretty great. Um, but, but so during, during this time, you know, we, we were just afforded the opportunity uh, just to kind of step away for a little bit, get used to being parenthood. And, and as I look around this room, um, for the couple of things come, come to, to my mind. But the first thing is, is just a deep well of gratitude because um, I, I, you guys have loved my wife and I so well. Um, it has been so humbling to be the recipient of so much kindness, so many, so many good meals, uh, so much food, and just love um, from y'all. And so church, on behalf of my wife and I, thank you um, for, for loving us well. It, it is a grace. It is an absolute grace. And I just can't say enough how, how thankful we are uh, for each one of you and just, um, yeah, what, what your kindness towards us has meant towards us. And then the other thing that just makes my heart just so thrilled um, is that being, you know, away for a little bit uh, has really ignited my, in my heart just what a grace it is uh, to, to get to be a pastor and get to be up here and teach. Because uh, one of the fun things that was so good for me to realize um, about what I get to do is that in, in the grand scheme of things, um, I am not needed. Uh, I, 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 Christ is going to continue to build his church. It's like when Paul says, in Ephesians, when Paul when Paul saw Paul saw his calling as a gift, as a grace, he says, "Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was working to me by putting by the working of His power." And he says that to me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that's how I feel this morning. It's like, I, it is a grace to get to be up here because the cool thing is, despite me being gone, the grace of God was continued to preach and God was still building his church. And what, it means, what that means is that, you know what? It's not that God needs me, but rather invites me to be a part of what he's doing. And so it's just a humbling thing. Uh, to get to, to be back. I'm thankful. I love you guys. I'm just, uh, yeah, I just cannot express enough just how, um, man, I'm, I love this place. And so we're, um, yeah, glad to be back. So anyways, so, you know, if you see, we were in our worship meeting before, um, it was a humbling conversation. I walked right into it and like, we're talking about all my different ticks that I have during preaching. And so I'm running through all the list of the things that I will say when I'm 
up here teaching. So you might hear a little bit more of them this morning because I'm dusting off the cobwebs. But uh, anyways, Mark 3, enough of me jabbering around. All right, Mark chapter 3. So we are continuing our series uh, through the gospel of Mark. And as you are uh, turning there, so really our text this morning is Mark 3, 7 uh, through 30. So we didn't make Charlie read all of that. We just made her read the snippet that we're going to be focusing on. Um, But uh, all of Mark 3 matters for what we're talking about today. But before we jump in, the question I want to ask and bring before us is, have you ever lived in ignorance before? Uh, I see nods. We should all have. There's been ignorance of a lot of things. So how many of y'all, because um, this can show its way, itself in, in so many different ways, um, but it, it, whenever, whenever you were ignorant of something, what did you think about when you realized what was true? So, so there's a couple scenarios that come into my mind. First off, how many of you guys have sang the wrong lyrics to a song for years? Yeah, so, so if, you're in, 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 uh, if you're like me, that's, that's my story. I remember, uh, for, I don't know who sings it, but you know the song, Give me the beat, boy's gonna free my soul. Yeah, we know that song for the longest time, up until a year ago or so, I thought it was Give me the people. <laughs> free my soul, I don't know what that means. That's just what they said, uh, right? But, or or may, maybe for some of y'all, uh, you've had, like there was a food you thought was just really gross for a long time, and then you actually had a good version of it, and that opened up your eyes. For me, that was sweet tea. For the longest time, I was ignorant that sweet tea is really good, but when I, when I moved to St. Angelo, all of a sudden, boom, wow, this is great. Um, or how many of y'all, uh, so you know the little eight packs of Gatorades you can get. Um, let me ask, how many of y'all, to, to pull them off, just do a Hulk, just rip, and, and that's how you get the Gatorades off? Like, you just rip it off. How many of y'all knew that the way that the package is designed, there's actually this little perforated lever that goes around it, that when you peel it, it actually like makes it to take off much easier. How many of y'all knew that? Okay, smaller hands. So I was 35 when I learned that. Trivia, I am currently 35. So, and here's the thing, I still prefer the, the, Hulk, the Hulk smash version of peeling off the Gatorade. Uh, but, but here's the point. Um, uh, we can all know something. We can all believe something. Um, but at the end of the day, truth that doesn't really change us, knowing something that to be true that doesn't really change us is honestly not really believed. It's still rejected. It's one thing to know something to be true, but it's another thing to know it and, and believe it. And if there's not actual belief, there's rejection. Rejection is the opposite of belief. And so in our text today, in Mark 3, in all of Mark 3, not just the portion we read, we read Jesus is confronting um, these di- di- different groups of people, different audiences, uh, ultimately about who, is, who he truly is. He's confronting this idea of unbelief, of, of people wanting to believe certain versions of him that ultimately fall incredibly short of who he actually was. And what one thing that Mark 3 is going to ultimately make abundantly clear is that at the end of the day, we have to accept Jesus on his terms. We cannot accept Jesus on our own terms. And what we're also going to see is that this is good news for us. We have to accept Jesus on his terms. And this is ultimately good news. This text that we read is a weighty text. It feels complicated. What is he talking about? That there's this unforgivable sin out there. Uh, there, We'll talk about all that. But one of the things that Jesus makes clear is that we cannot be neutral on who he claims to be. We just can't. 
And, and what we're going to see, though, is that if we really embrace him, who he truly reveals himself to be, what we're going to find is a good and gracious Savior. A good and gracious Savior. So why is it good news for us to accept Jesus on his terms? So the thread throughout Mark 3 is Jesus is confronting this idea. So you start off in, 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 in Mark 3, verse 7 through 12, and he's with some of his disciples, and they're in Galilee, and people from all over Israel are descending upon this area, and he's healing, he's casting out demons, he's performing all these miracles. And when he casts out these demons, these demons are professing, you are the son of God. Now, don't be mistaken. The demons aren't professing faith and repenting. But what they're doing is they're acknowledging who he was. And when Jesus tells them to not say anything, the reason for it is because what the demons want to do, they wanted to reveal his true identity at a time, not when Jesus was ready to ultimately cause confusion and chaos. This was not a profession of faith. But what you do see is that Jesus doesn't skirt away from the truth of what they said. He doesn't say, no, you're wrong. But rather, you see that in, this, in, this, in, this, in, this, uh, in these verses that he doesn't shy away from the fact that he truly is the son of God. And then you see in verses 13 through 19, so this is the text in which um, you see the 12 disciples, uh, apostles being uh, called. He, he lists them all out. And this is a fun group of guys, a really mixed bag of guys from different backgrounds and, and, and different stories. But Jesus, all, he calls them all to the same thing. He calls them to, to proclaim this message of repentance and uh, belief, repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew's gospel actually says a little bit more about what they were going to be preaching. But here's the point. While the disciples were, had a lot more to learn about who Jesus was, this was early on in Jesus' ministry, they had a lot more to learn about him being the King of kings and Lord of lords and the Savior, and, and for the specific reason he came. Despite all that, everything that they were to preach in that moment hinged on the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus is God, that Jesus was proclaiming uh, this message of repentance and belief. It, it revolved around the person of Christ, what they were being sent out to preach. And so Jesus isn't, again, he's not hiding his identity from them, but rather their ministry hinged on who he was. It hinged on who he was. And so these texts that are preceding uh, Mark 22 through 30, what we begin to see is that Jesus, who Jesus was and is, is incredibly essential to his ministry and where we are today. It is absolutely incredibly essential. And he's communicating this uh, idea of who he was. And, and what we see as he's communicating, he was not going to be undeterred. Uh, he's not, sorry, he was not going to be deterred from people trying to tell him otherwise. And that includes even his own family. Because you look in verses 20, actually, let's read. Let's read verse, look at verse 20 and 21. It says, And he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. So as Jesus is back home, there are still crowds gathered around him. So much so that he couldn't even eat. Can you imagine if you're married at that point? You see Jesus, your own son, not being able to eat. He's like, Jesus, you look thin. You need to eat something. Right? They try to seize him and take him away. And what does it say? It says that they thought he was out of his mind. Or another way to say it, they thought he was insane. And what do you see Jesus not do? Go with him. Why is that significant? 
Why is it significant as his family's trying to pull him away from the work and ministry that he was called to? Why is it significant that, that he doesn't go with him? Because at the end of the day, he knew he wasn't out of his mind. He knew he wasn't insane, but rather he knew he was the son of God. He was doing what he was called to do. And so, so we see in these verses that Jesus is absolutely firm on his identity as the son of God. And, and it kind of comes to a culmination in, in verses 22 through 30. Um, so we look at, let's look in verse 22. We, we see that, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And so that was a big critique from these scribes. So the scribes were these interpreters of the Mosaic law. Um, they were these interpreters. They were, a lot of times they were also teachers. And so when they see Jesus casting out demons, they're accusing him, saying, hey, the reason you're doing this is because you are possessed by a demon. It is the power of Satan. Beelzebub is another word for Satan. You are possessed by Satan. That's the, word, the reason why you're doing these things. And, and what we need to see is incredibly important in verse 22 is the word is. He is possessed. Because what that indicates that, that this was an active belief of the scribes. This was an active and ongoing perpetual belief of the scribes that he was uh, uh, possessed by demons. Now we'll get, to it in a sec- we'll get in a minute why that, is, that word is, is important. That's going to help us answer this question of what does Jesus mean by blaspheming the Holy Spirit? But what does Jesus respond? He responds by saying, look in verse 23. He says, and he called to them. He said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. What does Jesus mean by all this? I mean, the, the, the picture that I, that whenever I read this text, that I come to my mind is like, if you're playing basketball and you're trying to shoot hoops in your own net, the net you're trying to defend, are you helping your team in that case? No, right? You are actually actively hurting your team by scoring goals in your own net. Has anyone actually done that before playing Little League or no? Scored on your own net? Hey, I appreciate the humility for anyone who raises their hand. Good. Oh, that's awesome. But you see the point. When Jesus says that um, if, if, if it's by the power of Satan in which he's casting out these demons, Satan essentially is working against himself. And, and, and any organization, any team, any kingdom that is working against itself, its inevitable result will be destruction. It cannot stand. It will not last. Right? And so Jesus is making this point. He uses these different parables to make this point that it is impossible for him to be casting demons out by the power of Satan because ultimately, what is Satan here to do? Multiply and propel darkness in this world. What is casting out a demon doing? The opposite of that. So why would Satan do it? But here's the thing. At the end of the day, uh, Jesus isn't so much concerned about Satan and his kingdom, but rather this people, the scribes, and the people around listening to know who he truly was, who he truly is. So after this incident, this is what he says in verse 28 through 30, which these verses should give us a little bit of pause and cause us to kind of think a little bit. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, 
All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The concern of Jesus in this text um, is that both the scribes, his family, anybody else knew who he truly was. And what's really interesting, this warning that he gives here, so, so verses 28 through 30 are not necessarily a pronouncement on the scribes, but it's a warning to them. And what, what the interesting thing is that he warns both people who loved him, and people who, which was his family, and people who hated him, which were the scribes. He was warning them that if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you will not receive forgiveness. So what is this unforgivable sin? For some of you guys, you hear this verse, and you're, you may feel a sense of fear. I'm wondering, have I done this? Uh, have, I, have I done this one singular act that's causing me to not be ever, ever forgiven again? Um, there's been a lot of confusion. I think a lot of misinterpretation around this verse. But what is Jesus talking about when he says that this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this unforgivable sin? Well, to understand this, first off, we need to understand what is the role of the Holy Spirit? What is his role? Now, that question of itself can be a whole sermon series or a class that would be worth talking about. So, but, but from a high level, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? We have to understand that question in order to understand what does he mean by blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So really quick, go ahead and turn to John uh, chapter 15, uh, verse, uh, we're going to verse 26. So as you're turning there, in this section, Jesus is in the upper room discourse with his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. And so he's sharing a lot of things about them, their ministry presently and what life is going to be like for them afterwards and what he's calling them to. But in this discourse, he specifically begins to talk about the Holy Spirit and his role once he leaves and ascends uh, into heaven. And he says in John 15, he said, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So you think about when you drive down the highway at night, um, is, like, typically there's lights along the side. Is your focus on the lights or the road? For most of us, unless like electrical engineering or lighting is your thing, Uh, most of us are probably focused on the road, right? But the purpose of the light is to what? Show the road. It illuminates it. So the role of the Holy Spirit, what we see here is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit here? His role is ultimately to to illuminate the person of Christ. He says he actually bears witness about Jesus. And so the role of the Holy Spirit is that he is going to testify and point the world to the person of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the things that he said. The Holy Spirit will testify about who he is. And Jesus actually even clarifies this even in a few verses later. You can look in verse, uh, look in chapter 16, verse 12 through 14. It might even be on the same page. He says, uh, when the spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for him he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
The Spirit will always, always exalt and glorify and illuminate the person of Christ as he's truly revealed himself to be in the Scriptures. His role is to put a spotlight on Jesus as being the Son of God. He is God, the Savior of all mankind. His role is to illuminate and soften hearts to see their need for the gospel. Ultimately, what the Holy Spirit does, his role is to help people see how the person of Jesus has come into this world, ultimately to bring forgiveness and redemption and hope. He illuminates the gospel on hardened hearts. And so here's what we need to understand as it pertains to this question about what Jesus is saying back in Mark 3. If the role of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate Christ and to help see our need for the gospel, help to see our need for repenting and for believing in him, if that's his role, he's going to testify about the person of Jesus, then what we see about this, this question about, uh, or this statement that Jesus is about, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, is that this is not a singular sin. This, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not a singular sin. Because what does he say at first off? He says, if you utter any kind of blaspheme against Jesus and you repent of it, what are you going to get? Forgiveness. Now, if you are repenting of a sin, what are you acknowledging? Jesus. You're, if you're repenting of your sins, you are acknowledging what Jesus came to do, to bring forgiveness and, to, and when we repent and we believe, we receive it. When you don't confess a sin, when we don't repent, when we don't feel like we need to repent, what are we doing? Rejecting. Rejecting. So to, to, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is not a singular moment sin. Rather, it is a continual, ongoing rejection and unbelief as to what the Holy Spirit is testifying because when you, when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, and that word blaspheme means to revile against, or slander against. It's a pretty dark and harsh term. And so when you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, you're, you're essentially saying, the thing, the person of Jesus that you're testifying to, I reject. I disbelieve. I don't think it's true. And that ongoing perpetual rejection is what Jesus is talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not a singular moment sin. Now, here's the thing. We're not to make light of saying false things about Jesus or believing false things, which we'll get to that in a second. We don't make light of it. But here's the thing. Repentance of any sin, regardless of its severity, is get, forgiveness is given. But when there's not repentance, there is rejection. It's this continual, ongoing rejection of what the, who, what the Holy Spirit is testifying to. Sam Storms, uh, who's a pastor... Uh, he, he says it like this. He says, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, is not just unbelief, the sort of unbelief or rejection or doubt that is so typical in our world. This is defiance of what one knows beyond any shadow of a doubt to be true. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. This sin, therefore, isn't unforgivable, unforgivable because there is a defect uh, in the atoning death of Jesus. It isn't unforgivable because there's a limit to God's grace and mercy or because of some other shortcoming in the character of God. 
See, Jesus was not telling the scribes and their families that they had committed this sin. But he was warning them that the posture of their hearts in that moment was setting them on a trajectory to be in that category. The posture of their heart, essentially of them not believing who Christ was and what he came to do. Um, they would be guilty of this unforgivable sin in, unless they changed, unless they repented. And the consequence of this unforgivable sin is eternal separation from God. This is weighty. It should feel weighty. And so Jesus, what we see here is that Jesus gives us no option. He gives us no option about what we can believe about him, that we get to make up our own version of him, but rather that we have to accept him on, on his terms. And again, this is good news. This is good news. Let me give, as we talk about why is it good news, let me get, I'm going to give an encouragement and a warning. Oh, sorry, we're going to do the warning first, then we'll do the encouragement. Um, so whether you're a believer or not in, in this room, um, what this text does do, it confront, and confronts where there might be unbelief in us. Where there might be unbelief in us. And it, it, it should cause us pause and to honestly ask the question of ourselves is, how do I want to ask, how do I, sorry, how do I want to accept Jesus on my terms? How do I want to accept Jesus on my terms? So, so one of the things about, about me personally is that my uh, struggle, I guess you could say, I'm a very performance-oriented person. And so I can really internalize um, how I think I'm doing, whether I'm doing, feel like I'm, I'm performing well or not well. And it's so easy for me to, 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 to grade how well I'm doing and in relation to how I feel God thinks about me. Or, or it's, it's really easy for me to feel shame and guilt when I don't feel like I'm performing well. It, it happened this week, you know, uh, if, if having a son has done anything, it's, it's revealed just how broken I am. Um, but even this week, like as I've been going back to work, there's been a huge sense of guilt and shame. Like, oh, I feel like I'm, I'm slacking at home. Uh, and here's the thing, that, that, that doesn't come from Kersey. She's not projecting that on me. That's just my own sense of brokenness. And so, but, and so I don't know if this is how some of you are wired, but some of you in here might be wired in such a way um, that this is what you think it means to be a Christian, that you have to perform. You have to do, like, try better, do harder, be moral. You think that God needs your performance. You may have this feeling that he needs you to behave rightly. And so when you are behaving rightly, you and God are good. But when you're not behaving rightly, when you're not meeting your own standard, when you're not performing well, then you and God need distance or he doesn't accept you. He rejects you. Some of you have this works-based, uh, uh, this mindset in which you feel like God needs your behavior. And, and, and when you don't feel like you're behaving well enough, you don't feel valuable or worthy. And let me tell you, this is works-based righteousness is a lie straight from hell. And here's the thing. If, you, if this is what you view and what it means to be a Christian, this is not the spirit of truth. This is not what the Holy Spirit testifies to. If you believe that you have to clean yourself up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder and do better, if that's your view of what it means to be a Christian, you have believed a false Jesus. And that is you trying to believe Jesus, except Jesus on your own terms. That is you trying to believe, the, believe that I can do enough to be 
back in God's good graces. If you swim around with the question, am I doing enough? Which is, a, honestly, if I'm honest with myself, that's a question I ask myself, oh, am I doing enough? Here's the thing. Jesus never asked you that question. I say this, by the way, as, I do, as a confession, not as like, do what I'm doing. No, I, it's, it's really easy for me to, to grade ourselves. I don't know if you feel switched to degrade yourself uh, on how you're doing, but the reality is, this is not accepting Jesus on his own terms. Because at the end of the day, what we are saying is that the finished work of Christ on the cross was not enough to deal with my sin and that we have to add something to it. That's not the gospel. That's not who Jesus is proclaiming to be in Mark chapter 3. And so, so if that's where you find yourself in this moment, I would encourage you to consider you have bought a wrong view of who Jesus has claimed to be. Uh, uh, so this is a false Jesus. But for some other, some other of you, or for some other people, what we also see a lot of times in our culture as well, uh, it's kind of almost like the opposite end of this. You know, it's, you got to behave better, do try harder. On the opposite end, it's like we get a version of Jesus that he doesn't care what you do, right? We've bought, we've bought this Jesus, um, a version of Jesus that he never disagrees with you. He always champions you. He always affirms what you're doing. He always prefer, affirms your sin. He's almost more like a life coach than he is a savior, right? He's, like, he's, he's just like giving you a pat on the back and telling you that you're doing a great job. And if you bought a version of Jesus who never convicts you of your sin, who, never, who always, never disagrees with you, never disagrees with your choices or your behavior or anything, you have also bought a false Jesus, you have also bought a false Jesus. In, in his first letter, John says, um, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What, it means to, what does it mean to walk in darkness? What does it mean to, to walk in darkness? It does, it does not mean that we struggle with sin. All of us struggle with sin. Hello, right? Sin is a reality. And John even says in the same letter, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. So he's not talking about struggling with sin, but it's this ongoing loving your sin, embracing it, not seeing a need to repent of it. And when we buy a version of Jesus who never confronts or convicts us of our sin, because here's the thing, the role of the Holy Spirit is, is just that he will convict us of our sin. He will lead us towards repentance. And so if you've bought a version of Jesus who always affirms you and agrees with your choices, even your sinful one, you have bought a version of Jesus that is contrary to how he's revealed himself in his word. You have bought a false Jesus. And if Jesus is never um, calling you out or convicting you of your sin, you're accepting him. Really what you're doing is that you've bought a version of Jesus. You bought a curated version of Jesus that looks more like you than it does like him. And so, so regardless of where you are, so, so there's a lot of other things we said. Some of y'all in here just flat out reject. It's just, I, 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 don't, I don't see the need for Jesus. But, but here's the reality. All of us on some level um, are guilty of blaspheming Jesus. Whether in our words, saying and speaking untrue things, or in our actions, 
Again, believing a works-based righteousness or believing that Jesus is always just going to champion what you do. All of us, whether in our words, in our actions that really affect, that come from what we believe, are guilty of what Jesus is claiming here, of this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, this slandering, this reviling, this defying against. Each one of us have been guilty of believing untrue things about Jesus. Guilty about thinking we need to earn, or guilty about thinking that Jesus is always going to affirm. And, and, and ultimately, each one of us have given guilty of this very thing Jesus is warning about in Mark 3. But the difference between the person who's committed this unforgivable sin of rejecting Jesus and the person who hasn't is repentance. And here's where we find the good news of Mark 3. How does the gospel of Mark begin? John the Baptist proclaiming this message The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. Repent for this forgiveness of sins. And so what does it mean to accept Jesus on his terms? Jesus' terms ultimately does require repentance. It It requires us turning from our sin. It requires turning from a false view of him. It requires this turning. But what we get in exchange is a life in which we get more of him. When we, the other side of repentance is more Jesus. Because when we're repenting, we're essentially turning from this thing we're trying to find life in and ultimately giving it to him. Repentance, as we've said over and over again, we're going to keep saying it until it gets ingrained in us. Repentance is not a dirty word, but rather it is an invitation to get more of Jesus. It's an invitation to go in the direction Jesus wants us to go. And the only thing that Jesus requires of us is that we come to him, is that we can bring it to him. He doesn't require our work. He doesn't require our behavior. He, doesn't re- he requires a heart that is broken over its sin and is willing to admit its brokenness and bring it to him and letting him take care of the rest. This is why it's so good for us to accept Jesus on his terms and not our own. Because whenever we're trying to accept Jesus on our own terms, we are always a part of the equation. And we are broken. We are needy. But when we accept Jesus on his terms, we get to confess that he has done everything that we need to find life. Accepting Jesus on his terms will feel like death. Why? Because we are, sometimes we feel like we're letting go of something that feels good. It's hard to let go of sin. Like it's, I'll say this, honestly. It's at times really hard for me to believe that I don't have to earn my salvation. Can I, can I say that? Because I so want to grade myself. I so want to create the checklist. I so want to do these things. It is hard for me to believe. But when I do believe, when I repent of that and turn from that, I get a Savior who is so gracious and kind and long-suffering with me. And that is so much better because at the end of the day, I'm not having to try to find rest in my own brokenness. I get to find rest in the one who can fix my brokenness. And so it feels like death. He may be calling you to to give up something, um, a relationship, an addiction, a struggle. I don't know. Repentance often feels like death, but what's on the other side of it is so much better than what our sin could ever try to give us. 
John says it like this, back to 1 John. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. We're sure, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Just, meaning he's right to do it, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he just? Because when we repent of our sins, we turn from the things that uh, we want to cling to. We are essentially saying, no, I, I can't do this anymore. Jesus, you've already done it. You've already done it. And that's why it's just, because we're not relying on ourselves, we're relying on God. And here's the thing. What Jesus makes clear in Mark 3 is that when it comes to forgiveness, nothing is off the table. You can think of the most heinous thing. You can say the most atrocious thing. And don't hear me say, I'm not trying to encourage anyone to do this. I'm trying to help you understand that whatever it is you are fearful of repenting of because you feel like that's way too much, that's just a lie again. The grace of God extends to all unrighteousness. Do you ever feel like you've done something unforgivable? When we repent and believe, when we accept Jesus on his terms, what we will find is a God who's so gracious and is so delighted to forgive that thing you're bringing up that you think is unforgivable. And when we talk about, we sing about the faithfulness of God, this is a part of it. This, the messiness of sin um, makes us feel, and sin should, because sin is an offense against God. We don't want to take it lightly. But the way we take sin seriously is that we bring it to Jesus. That's how we take sin seriously, because there is where we find restoration and redemption and forgiveness. Who Jesus has revealed himself to be in the word is far better than any version of him that we can conjure in our own minds. Mark 3 is calling us to see that we cannot curate a version of Jesus based on our likes, opinions, and preferences, but rather we have to accept him on his terms, and this is an invitation to something far better. And so here's where we need to be honest with ourselves. And Ben, you guys can go ahead and comment up. The question I want us to think about is, where might there be unbelief in your life? Where might there be unbelief in your life? Is there anything right now in your life that you are fearful of repenting of? Because you know, or you're fearful to confess or bring to the light. Because you know by doing so, some things are going to happen. Some ripple effects are going to happen. Some consequences might happen. Is there anything that you're afraid to confess or bring to the light? If, if so, let me gently just say, that is you believing that you gain more by holding on to the sin than bring it out into the open. So my encouragement for you would be to repent and believe and trust God in that process. Do you feel like you've gone too far? Do you feel like you've done something so bad that Jesus is done with you? Let me assure you, again, according to his word, the promises of scripture, that he is faithful and just to forgive of all righteousness. You have not gone too far, my friend. Repent and believe. And maybe there's some of you in here that you don't consider yourself a believer at all. And first of all, I'm glad you're here. Like, we are glad you're here. 
Thanks for hanging out with us on a Sunday morning. But I would ask you and encourage you to think about, what about Jesus is hard for you to believe? Where are there still questions? Where is there still maybe a false view or misinterpretation or maybe um, some, some wondering? But I would ask you to consider the invitation Christ gives us as he's truly revealed himself in Scripture. And one of these things, last things that I want us to think about is that as we think about a text like this, it should feel weighty. It, it should feel pretty big. And what it should also do, is it should also cause us to look outward because there's a world, there is a world who, who are still rejecting the gospel. I know whenever I, this week, I remember I was sharing this, uh, this text with, uh, with Kirsty and when I was explaining to her what it, what it meant, um, her first response was, this is sad. Because of that reality, there are still people that we love that people that we, that we long to see know Jesus who reject him. And so our role as a church, as we think about that, what Mark 3 is calling us, inviting us into, um, is that at the end of the day, we want to be praying for these people. We want to be, be always, as every opportunity presents itself, pointing them to Jesus. But what we have to understand is that at the end of the day, what these people and the world needs is not our stances and opinions. They need our repentance. They need our belief because at the end of the day, that is what transforms us into the person of Christ. And we want Christ to shine through us more than anything. And so as we take communion this morning, and wherever the Spirit might be working and convicting, um, use this time and space um, to remember the invitation of repentance that Christ gives us. That accepting Jesus on his terms means that we believe that his body broken on the cross was enough to redeem us from our sins. And his blood spilled really does cleanse us, makes us clean from all unrighteousness. So when we partake of communion, we're reminded of this reality that we get, that is a grace that we don't have to bring, we don't have to create a false view of Jesus, but rather we get to accept him on his terms. If you aren't a believer in here, we do ask that you would abstain from the table. This is a, a family meal, but we would ask you to consider Jesus. And let me just, as we begin this time, I just want to emphasize that Jesus' terms are gracious and kind. And they are far better than anything we could ever think about. So would you accept him on his terms by coming to the table? Know you can do so, bringing whatever it is you need to bring. So Jesus, we're thankful for your grace and kindness. We are thankful that you have made a way for us sinners to find life and hope. We just ask right now, Lord, that you would use this space to continue to remind us of where we have need, that you are a God who's able to meet that need in far more abundance than we could ever realize. Lead us to repentance. Help us see that this is not a bad word, but this is an invitation for more of you. And that's ultimately really what our soul longs for and wants. Would you do that, Lord?